All right, thank you. So last week, we spent a lot of time talking about baptism. Uh, and then I, I did something completely hypocritical. I made the statement that most of us think a lot about baptism, and we think through our theology of baptism, but we're only baptized once in life. Lord's Supper, most of us don't really think about our theology of the Lord's Supper very much, but we take it again and again and again in the Christian life. And I was urging us to think more deeply about the Lord's Supper, and then I ran out of time to think deeply about the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so I did touch on just a couple of things theologically that we believe about the Lord's Supper. It is a means of grace. It's a blessing. It's a way of spiritual nourishment, not in a Roman Catholic sense that it's sort of a magical, superstitious grace being infused into us, but our faith strengthened as we partake of the Supper, as we feast upon Jesus. Um, we do believe Jesus is really present, but it's not a physical type of presence. You know, there's, there's kind of four main views of the presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has transubstantiation, which is that uh, the bread and the wine actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that can't be true because Jesus Christ is a human. He still lives at the right hand of the throne of God. And so in his humanity, he is not both in, uh, uh, physically present at the right hand of the throne of God and physically present in the bread and the wine. Now, if you were to get into the mass, the Roman Catholic mass, actually what it believes, you'd see lots of, of theological problems, including just the idea that Christ's sacrifice needs to be reiterated or redone to add something to it. Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. Um, so there's transubstantiation. Then there's consubstantiation, where Martin Luther said, okay, we don't think the, the elements really become the body and blood of Christ, but Luther, uh, still trying to reconcile all of that, said th that Christ is in, with, and under the elements. Uh, so he's, he's still saying there's sort of something superstitious about it. There was a, another kind of extreme that came out of the Reformation, uh, which was that it's mere memorial, that nothing really symbolic, nothing really spiritually significant is happening. It's just a memorial. This is just us remembering what Jesus did. So it's kind of like a tombstone to remind us of G what Jesus accomplished. All right. Our view is Jesus is really present in the Lord's Supper. He is spiritually present in a unique way. So isn't he with us everywhere? Yes, we see that in Psalm 139 and other places. He's with us everywhere, but there are certain ways that he is uniquely with us. And we talked last week about how married couples have different ways that they relate to each other in different settings. And so too does the Lord Jesus. I think he meets with us in a unique way in corporate worship. And I think especially he meets with us in a unique way in the Lord's Supper. So there is what we would call real spiritual presence in the Supper. What I wanna do just for a couple minutes today before we get into our lesson, is to ask the question, what should I think about during the Lord's Supper? And I'm going to start with a couple of y'all. What do y'all think about during the Lord's Supper? The real Lord's Supper that happened before. Okay, good. How we talk to them and say things to them that were important. Good, going back to the upper room. Yeah. Good. About like what he did for us, and then when we get to drink it with him, have passed it. Good. Um, Sinclair Ferguson. I'm always commending Dr. Ferguson, but he had a week where he spent uh, just on his podcast every day talking about the Lord's Supper, and he used, I think, his words were anticipation, so looking forward to that future meal, consecration, commemoration, 
proclamation, and there may have been one other one. Uh, I would encourage you really to go back and listen to it. All you have to do is Google, if you want to um, go back in past episodes, just Google Sinclair Ferguson Things Unseen podcast, uh, and you can scroll back a few weeks, and his lessons on the Lord's Supper were just so good. Uh, and I'd urge you to go back and listen to those. I love that that podcast. It's about five or six minutes long every day. So I drive from my house to the waterfront park to work out most mornings. I can cover it right there in those six minutes. So by, by 5.30 in the morning, I've had just a great spiritual meal. Um, what else do you think about in the Lord's Supper? Good. Yeah. Yeah. What are the things that are disrupting my fellowship with Christ? You know, if, if, if you're carrying guilt, oftentimes it's in those moments of stillness that your guilt comes to mind. And guilt is, you know, there's bad guilt and then there's good guilt. There's some guilt that drives us to the need of repentance. And so that's a great time to be still and figure out what are the things that are hindering me from serving you wholeheartedly. Um, there's two things that I think about the most, and I really have to work to think about these things, so it doesn't just sort of happen, but I really try to focus my mind on these two things during the Lord's Supper. The first is the phrase, take and eat. Um, it, when you hear the words take and eat, your, your, place, your mind probably goes to, to the Lord's Supper, to the upper room, right? But really, if you were to cha- uh, trace that thread through the whole of the scripture, that is a very substantial phrase. Because in the garden, if you go back to the original Hebrew, the serpent says to Eve, actually, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, take and eat. When the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and God is preparing them for the Passover, uh, he tells them those words for the Passover meal, take and eat. When our Lord is in the upper room, he, of course, tells them, take, eat. You know, but there's also an amazing scene after that when the Lord is in the garden praying. Matthew 26, 39, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what was the cup? It was the cup of judgment. And we could get into a whole discussion of what the various cups signified in the Lord's Supper. But the cup of judgment came before the cup of blessing in Jewish tradition. And so the Lord Jesus, for us to give us the cup of blessing, he first took to himself the cup of God's curse, the cup of God's judgment. And so when he says, may this cup pass from me, he's talking about the whole of your judgment being poured out onto me. Uh, and, And so he says, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He understood the terrors that awaited him. He was not casual. He's not saying, oh, I'm the son of God. This will be no problem. He understood the soul-wrenching pain that awaited him upon the cross. And so he prays that. And in a very real sense, his father says to him, no, my son, take and drink this. Take, eat, take, drink. You know, I always think of, of that when, when Pastor Walton or I are serving the Lord's Supper and those words are said, take, eat. It's a summary of the whole gospel from beginning to end. How Jesus took our curse that we received by taking and eating what we should not have eaten. 
and how because of his death, we get to take and eat what he alone should have been able to enjoy. Tremendous privilege there. You know, the other thing that I always think about in the Lord's Supper is what's not present. So in our family, we have a saying, if it doesn't have meat, it's not a meal. All right, so I apologize to any vegans, but if there's not, I apologize to you on a lot of levels, uh, but if, uh, if it doesn't have meat, it's not a meal in our family. The Lord's Supper has no meat. If you were to look at the connection between the Lord's Supper and the Passover, the Passover was the Old Testament uh, family feast. And, and what was the meat at the center of the Passover? The lamb, right? We all know tons of symbolism between lamb and Jesus Christ. After the lamb was sacrificed, the blood spread on the doorpost, the family did what? They took and ate. They, they ate the meal. The reason they were able to eat the meal is after the lamb was sacrificed, it was still dead. It was still there. Why don't we have meat in the Lord's Supper? Because our sacrifice got up. Our sacrifice is now at the right hand of the throne of God. He was raised from the dead, and now he is there in heaven. And one day, we will be there to feast with him. That's the anticipation aspect of it. And so I always think about what's missing from that meal. I grew up going to Passover, eating the meal. By the way, <laughs> this is just a, a funny thing. Lamb was too expensive for the synagogue, and so we always had chicken at the Passover. Never understood that. All right, insert your Jew cheap Jewish joke here. Okay, um, but I grew up with that emblazoned in my mind that the center of this meal was the lamb. The center of that meal is too, but he's not on the table in front of us. He's at the throne of God in heaven, and we have fellowship not with a dead sacrifice, but a living Savior. I can't help but think of that in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and the more I focus my mind on those realities, the greater of a blessing, the greater of a means of grace the Lord's Supper is to me. Um, if you have questions about the Lord's Supper, please talk to me or any of the elders about it. This morning, we're going to focus on the topic of Reformed Church government. Uh, it's probably not surprising to you that I would use the imagery of a shepherd with sheep because that's the most frequent image used in uh, the scriptures about church government. We're going to look at it. I'm going to refer back to your book a little bit, but most of this is going to be uh, just stuff we're going to talk through, so you don't need to worry too much about your book. We're going to look at three headings. First, just I want you to understand Presbyterian church government. You're going to hear us use terminology like Presbytery and General Assembly and stuff like that, elders, deacons. I want you to understand what all that means. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing is qualifications for church officers. So how do we know if somebody is called to office in the church? And then third, we're going to talk about shepherding at First Scots. Um, there's a lot of components to shepherding. The one I do want to talk about probably a little more than the rest is church discipline, um, because many of you probably, like me, grew up in a setting where church discipline actually had a negative connotation. Um, I think the one who did the, more than anybody in, in the history of America to give us that negative connotation was Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Uh, it, it makes it look like a cold, heartless act of vengeance to practice church discipline. That was actually what Hawthorne wanted to convey, by the way. He was opposed to biblical uh, Christianity that, that he had seen in Puritan New England. Uh, 
it's actually a sweet and loving way that we're called to shepherd the flock. So we're going to talk a little bit about church discipline today. But let's start with, with Presbyterian church government. I think the most basic question we need, is, we need to ask is, why do we need church government? Why can't the church just sort of exist and everybody does their part, right? And everybody kind of stays in their own lane and all of that. Why do we need church government? What do you think? Good. So both of y'all's answers are wonderful. One is we're sinners, right? So when the Bible compares us to sheep, that's not one of those things that we ought to take as a compliment, right? Sheep are stupid and they stink and they bite. Okay. And so they need a shepherd. By the way, that's not the best way to sell somebody on going into ministry. Hey, come be a, come be a pastor. Sheep are stupid. They stink and they bite. Um, But we really are. And so we need structure. We need governmental leadership. Uh, I want you to look with me at a passage, uh, Matthew 16. This is actually, Lord willing, what I'm going to be preaching on next Sunday. Uh, So you're going to get a little bit of a preview of that. In Matthew 16, our Lord is talking about building his church. And in verse 13, It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of that. I I want you to just see a couple of things. One, Jesus is building his church. And two, he is handing the keys of the church, the leadership of the church, to certain individuals. We see that here with Simon Peter. I do not think this is uh, uh, entrusting the church into a, into a line of apostolic succession as Roman Catholicism teaches. That, that that's how we get the Pope is this line of, of apostolic succession. I do think Jesus is saying, I'm going to govern my church through the apostolic word, through the scriptures. And I'm going to entrust the leadership of the church to certain people. Um, That's what he's talking about here with giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Uh, that there is a leadership aspect of the church. And so, of course, for there to be any aspect of leadership, there has to be a structure because we are sinners. And otherwise, we all want to be our own leaders, right? We all want to be in charge. Uh, And so what we want to do as a church is is not to ask the question, do we need church leadership? I, I think history proves we do. What we need to ask is, How do we do this biblically? Um, How do we do church government as biblically as possible? I I would argue that Presbyterian government is an extremely biblical form of church government. Is it perfect? No, we're not going to see perfect church government until glory. But I think it is really the best form of church government because it is biblically faithful. There are three main forms of, uh, three main ways churches are governed. One is congregational. 
So each, in, each congregation governs itself. Um, you may have elders who lead to some degree, but the congregation itself holds the authority. Uh, second is a, what's called a prelacy or a hierarchical form of church government. That would be things like Episcopalianism, Roman Catholicism. There are other denominations out there that use a hierarchical form, usually with archbishops and bishops, and, and they have different authorities, and, and, but you can have a lot of power invested in maybe one person or one group of people. Um, the third is Presbyterianism. What does Presbyterian mean? Either y'all are all being so humble that you don't want to draw attention to yourself by blurting out the right answer or you don't have a clue. Presbyteros means elder. So Presbyterian really just means elder-led. Um, that's how Presbyterian government works, that elders are elected from within the congregation according to God's call, and they lead the church. There's actually sort of three levels of the way that works. And I want to share this really just because you're going to hear us use these words. So you've got the local session. So that's made up of the elders of the congregation. So we are a local congregation, a local session. We have our own elders here. Okay. A lot of local sessions make up what's called a presbytery. So our presbytery, we belong to a group of churches that stretches regionally from Mount Pleasant to Orangeburg down to Hilton Head. There's about 12 churches and three church plants. So we get together for fellowship. We get together to discuss the business of the church. We get together to discuss church planting. And by God's grace, our presbytery has been able to plant several churches in the last few years. So presbyteries are regional. We're in the southeast, so you have the luxury of sort of a, a density of PCA churches. When you get out like to the northwest, Pacific Northwest, you might be two or 300 miles from the closest uh, church in your presbytery. So it's a little bit harder to have fellowship. But here, uh, I love getting to fellowship with, with the other uh, pastors and elders in our presbytery. All the presbyteries, and I think there's 88 or so presbyteries in the PCA, they make up what's called the General Assembly. And if you're noticing any similarities to the American form of church government, it's actually because the American form of church government is loosely based on historic Presbyterian government. Um, so this is how sort of power or authority in the church is invested. We are uh, a grassroots denomination. In other words, the PCA works really hard not to have centralized power. In fact, for a long time, the PCA wouldn't, uh, our denomination wouldn't even allow like central offices of the different denominational agencies to be in the same town. Um, that ended up sort of uh, happening through the years to be more uh, economical. But the congregation, or the, the denomination is very, very focused on being grassroots, led by the elders of the local church so that we as a church aren't just issued orders that come down from somebody you've never heard of in a place you've never been to telling us this is what we're going to start doing as a church. Some of y'all have been through that. 
Some of y'all have watched your churches sort of receive dictates from people that you've never heard of or seen in places you've never been to telling you this is how you are now to practice as a church. And we're not talking about small things uh, that might be some odd detail in the book of church order. We're talking about things like same-sex marriage being in, uh, uh, being accepted and required among the local churches by some denominational office, and that's happened in a lot of settings, and some of you have been through the pain of that. Um, we aim to be a grassroots denomination, and so the things that happen don't get, aren't dictates issued to us by some people in power. The power, the authority rests in the local bodies. Um, just one word on that. What happens if we as a church if our denomination begins drifting in a really unhealthy direction and one day, and I don't see this happening, in fact, I think the direction of our denomination is actually really healthy. But what happens if one day the PCA begins to accept, for example, same-sex marriage? We have a vote. We need, it's actually way too easy to leave our denomination because so many people who deformed our denomination came out of, of denominations where the building, the property, and everything were leveraged against the congregation to keep them from leaving. It is actually extremely easy to leave the PCA. It requires calling a congregational meeting, um, I think with only a week's notice in this case, uh, and a vote, and a simple majority vote. And effective that day, we would no longer be part of the PCA. I think that's a decision to be taken with great care uh, and understand the gravity of dividing from the body of Christ, but there comes a point where if the body has left you, you then have to leave the body. Uh, and so that's one of the things that helps the PCA be a grassroots denomination. Let me talk about the offices in the church. The lo oh, yeah, go ahead. Great question. Good. So every church in every presbytery can send at least two elders, uh, ruling elders, to be commissioners. So this past year, Ron and Mark went uh, on behalf of our congregation. And then all teaching elders, all pastors can go. Also, if you get to something like 450 members, you get one extra voting member of presbytery. Uh, so all the... The votes at General Assembly all rest with the lowest level of power, which is, or of authority, which is the local church. Does that make sense? Okay. I thought they were like an elected guy. No. No. So there are denominations that do what's called a delegated assembly, where you, you elect a few people to represent each presbytery. Uh, we do not do that, and I hope we never do. It's, it's really hard to do it the way we do it. There's sometimes... 2,500 plus people trying to vote on things. That's hard, but it's good. Here's what it means. You know, who's, let's say, Ligon Duncan's the most famous pastor in the PCA. Um, before this year, we would have said Tim Keller or Harry Reeder. Both of them went to be with the Lord this year. So Ligon Duncan might be the most famous pastor in the PCA. His vote and my vote count for the same amount. Now, his voice might go a little further than mine does because he's well-known, but our votes are the same. So it's not, we don't, we're not a power broker denomination. Great question. Um, so what makes somebody an elder? Well, we need to define what an elder is first. An elder is 
someone who by God's call is invested with the spiritual leadership of the local church. By God's call is invested with the spiritual leadership of the local church. An elder is somebody who is charged with caring for the flock, shepherding the flock. In fact, time doesn't really allow us to do this, but let me give you a couple of passages to look at this afternoon. I want you to see there are lots of different terms that the scriptures use for the same office, uh, for the same role of elder. So in Titus 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So he uses that word elder or presbyteros. Well, in the same section, the same instructions, he uses a different word for it. In verse seven, he says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So just in that one passage, you've got the language of elder, overseer, By the way, the word overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. That's the word for bishop. That's the root of the word bishop in our language today. So some denominations see the bishop as higher, uh, a higher position than maybe the local pastor. I think the scriptures actually teach that that elders and overseers or episkopos is the same position. It's the same uh, level of authority. And then it says, as God's steward. So you've got three titles for elders there, elder, overseer, and steward. Um, uh, Paul, when he's addressing the Ephesian elders uh, in Acts 20, does almost the same thing. He interchanges the word overseer and elder. Uh, And then Peter, I think this is the most fascinating one. First Peter chapter five. Peter is the chief apostle, right? He's the spokesman of the apostles, but he's talking to the local church. Uh, And he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, he could call himself an apostle. He could sort of toot his own horn there and show his authority, but he actually says, as a fellow elder, he says, I am on par with you. I'm I'm an equal with you. What happened in the early church is there was a transition from apostle leadership, apostolic leadership, to leadership by elders. And so Presbyterian church government seeks to keep the same thing going. Now, if you were to keep reading 1 Peter 5, um, Peter uses the word overseer and shepherd in that section. So we would argue that all those words, shepherd, overseer, or bishop, uh, elder, uh, all of those are interchangeable for the role of an elder. The elder's job is to oversee the spiritual condition of the church of Jesus Christ. They are not, uh, elders are not to take the church for our own, but we are stewards under Christ to present the church back to him, in a sense, better than we found it. Um, Hebrews 13, I preached on this uh, earlier this year. Uh, Whoever wrote uh, Hebrews, we're not exactly sure emphasizes this. Um, He says in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, He goes on in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them do so with joy and not groaning for that would be no advantage to you. Elders are entrusted with the spiritual leadership of the church and will one day stand before God to give account for those who are under their care. 
Now, one of the things I really love about Presbyterian government is it acknowledges something that the New Testament does without fail. We don't see a single elder in places. We see what's called a plurality of elders. We see multiple elders in churches. It, it's to keep all the power from resting on one person. You have instead a group of elders. We here at First Scots in the Presbyterian system, we call that a session. Um, so the session is the local elders of the church. Um, there are two types of elders. And what we mean by that is teaching elders. Those are pastors who have been through seminary. Uh, they've been examined in great detail and their main call is to preach the gospel. Uh, others are what we call ruling elders. Don't think of that in a worldly sense of ruling, in other words, seeking power for yourself, but rather uh, called to spiritually lead the flock. Um, so we have a plurality of elders, and I think the New Testament requires that. Rather than investing power into one person who is in charge of everything, it is distributed among the churches. Um, what about the office of the deacon? I think the best way to understand it is to turn to Acts chapter 6. Would you turn there with me? We believe there are two offices of leadership in the local church. Uh, the elder and the deacon. And Acts 6 really gives us a great vision, I think, of what the role of the deacon is. Look at verse 1. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose among the Hebrews, against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So in those days, you didn't have social security and those things. You, you were taken care of by whatever kind of social group you belong to. So when the people had been pagans, when the Greeks had been pagans, they were probably taken care of other, by others in the, the temple of Zeus or whatever it is. When they become Christians and they lose that care, they may even have lost the care from their families. Their families may have marginalized them. And now they're going hungry. And it's not something that the leadership of the church intended to do. They, they didn't say, hey, we don't care about the Greek widows. This was just something that they didn't realize was going on and needed to be addressed. That happens all the time in churches. It's not intentional. It's just inadvertent oversight. So the 12, that's speaking of the apostles there in, in verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Uh, two things. They're not saying that scornfully, like we're above this. It's this duty that God has called us to do is so all-consuming. To, to preach the word, to pray, we don't have time also to serve tables. And by the way, that word serve tables is diakonos, to wait tables, or the root of our word deacon. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That really is my framework for understanding the role of the deacon. It's the, the deacon absorbs the duties that may otherwise pull the elders away from their primary duty of shepherding. So uh, deacons, by, by definition, are servants. And one of the chief ways they're to serve is to help the elders do whatever they need to do in order to shepherd the flock. And so that's, that's really the origin of the office. Some um, churches will give them very narrow roles in terms of care for the building, uh, care for the poor. Those are good duties. Those are duties the deacons ought to have. Functionally, the way we do it is really the, the deacons attend our session meetings and 
often um, their charge is to do anything they can to make sure that elders do not get pulled away from that chief primary duty of the word and prayer. Um, so that's the role of the deacon. Uh, that's a summary of Presbyterian church government. Let me talk for a minute about qualifications for office. We believe that in his word, God has given us everything we need to know for life and godliness. One of the things that he's given us is our qualifications for elders and deacons so that we can look at somebody and say, okay, is this somebody whom God has called to the work? I'm going to give you the primary places for that. First um, Timothy 3. Titus 1, Acts chapter 6, they give us some of the best descriptions of the qualifications for elders and deacons. Um, I summarize those for you in your booklet on page 62. Um, you know, elders and deacons should not be a popularity contest, though they should be well thought of in the congregation. It shouldn't be an honorary position, though it is a position of great honor and dignity. It's not a who's who of the church, though it ought to be those men who know the flock well. Um, we do believe God has given us wisdom in the scriptures about how to recognize those men. We must do it according to the scriptures. So if we say, you know, I'm not really worried about what the Bible says. This guy's really good in business. Or, or this guy's really gifted. You know, I, I know he's got some things in his life that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense, and, and there may be some, in question, some questions about integrity. I know that sounds really goofy to say that, but churches say that all the time. They're willing to overlook all sorts of character flaws to get leaders who are talented. If you read the qualifications for elders and deacons, all but one is about character. Did you know that? There's one qualification about competency. He must be apt to teach. Everything else is about his character. Does he have a bad temper? Is he greedy? Is he given to drunkenness? You know, you look through all those things and all of them really point us to what's the man's heart like? That's how we know the Lord has called somebody to ministry, not because they're, they were successful and ran a Fortune 500 company, but are they humble, godly leaders? Christians will never, ever regret putting humble, godly leaders over them. But you will often regret putting arrogant, ungodly leaders whom God has not called. They will lead the church astray and they will harm the flock. So we've got to be vigilant about that. Um, men who are sanctified, men who are servants, men who have a shepherd's heart. You know, so... Uh, in this congregation, seasonally, we take nominations for officers. I want you to look at, at the men of the church and say, okay, are these men who are already doing the work? Are, are these men who are already shepherding the flock? Ask questions, are these people, who, is this somebody who cares about my soul, who's investing their life into mine? Um, those ought to be the kinds of questions you're asking. We do have a process of nominations, and then men who are nominated and accept the nominations go through 12 weeks of training. Um, it is a hard process it, by design. It's a hard process because we take this calling so seriously. So it, it's about 1,000 pages of reading, 12 weeks of study. It ends with a final exam. Um, not, to say, not to say, okay, does this man have all the competencies? Uh, 
but rather to really be able to say, do his views align with what we as a church have told our congregation and the world that we believe? Um, just a word, and, and I'd encourage you to talk to me about this privately if, if you have any concerns about it. We do as a church hold to the historic position uh, called complementarianism, that men and women are made differently uh, on purpose. And those differences matter in the home. You know, they matter in child rearing. They matter in how the home is ordered. Those differences also matter in the life of the church. And so we do hold to the position of male headship in the home and in the church. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. It does not mean that we do not value women in this church. In fact, I would tell you, every elder in this church will say to you, the best thing we have going for us as a church by far is the women of this church. They, they are by far our best asset. Um, I think most women of this church would tell you that they have never felt undignified or less significant because they're women in a church that practices male headship. Uh, I think most would actually uh, say that they have been better cared for and loved and shepherded in this congregation than they were in congregations where women were elders or deacons. Um, that's really, really significant because I know there is pressure on all of us to, not con uh, to conform to the patterns of this world. And that is a very offensive pattern of this, uh, that, that is, excuse me, in the eyes of this world, complementarianism is very offensive. Y'all oppress women. I've heard that a number of times. It shows, that, that shows absolute ignorance of the scriptures when people say that. Um, God himself has created distinctions between men and women, and if we are not going to honor those distinctions, then we are actually throwing that back in the face of the God who made us, and he made us by design with a purpose for male and female. We don't want to denigrate that. Um, Talk to me if you have concerns about that. What I'm going to ask you, uh, if you have concerns about it, is what do the scriptures say? And we can sit down and look at them together. Um, well, the last part of this is shepherding. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? Well, if you look at, at um, page 66, there's a chart there. That comes from a book that is really formative for our leadership at First Scott's called The Shepherd Leader, or the, she uh, the, yeah, the Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer. And he says there's four jobs of the shepherd leader. The first is know the flock. So, you know, some of y'all have probably been to churches where elders or whatever form of leadership you had, they came to board meetings. They may not participate in worship in the life of the church. That's actually very common. I've heard many of you say in your churches, y'all had elders that came to the session meetings, but you hadn't seen them in worship in years. Well, one of the very most basic things is that a shepherd must know the flock. They must be present with the life of the flock. They must understand the difficulties of being a sheep. Uh, and so the shepherd walks with the sheep. The shepherd knows the sheep. The shepherd leads the sheep. Um, by life, by example, uh, the shepherd feeds the sheep through the ministry of the word. The one that I want to talk about the most is the shepherd protects the sheep. Um, we have been dealing with this a lot, first in Jude and then in Revelation. There are always going to be false teachers knocking on the door of the church. How do we protect against them? Uh, 
through shepherds who know the truth. That's one of the biggest problems in American Christianity is we don't know enough of what's right to be able to detect what's wrong. And, And so often... Uh, the issue for the church is not a matter of right versus wrong, but right versus almost right. And the American church tends to be so undiscerning that we can't tell the difference and we get led astray. That's why I've said again and again, the shelf life for a church in America is generally around 50 years. And then they will go astray, if not before. Um, How do we protect the flock? It's a process called church discipline. Discipline really just means loving correction, loving correction. Uh, It's the thing that good parents offer their children. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says, if you don't discipline your child, what kind of parent are you? Well, good leaders of the church must exercise church discipline. There's three purposes of church discipline. What do you think they are? What's that? Good. I think that's a big part of it, and it's sort of going to summarize all of them. What else? Good. So restoring a wayward sinner. What else? Yes, protecting the congregation. You know, if you go back and read Acts 20 this afternoon, Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, you know, after I'm gone, fierce wolves are going to creep in among you, and they're going to seek to lead people astray. That is always, always, always going to happen until glory. Every church will have sheep and wolves. We do. I don't, we don't have team uniforms, so I don't know who's who, but we always have to be vigilant about that. Okay, so restoring the the sinners, um, protecting the flock. Those are what I would call numbers two and three. What's the highest priority in church discipline? The glory of Christ seeking the glory of Christ to be seen in the church. So when the church is, is being led into immorality, when the church is, is uh, not acting like God's holy people, those are the sort of things that Satan rejoices in and in a sense points at Jesus and says, you say these are your holy people whom you've remade. Look at them, they're just like the world. So the three purposes of church discipline, first are the glory of Christ, second, Uh, preservation of the peace and purity of the church, and then third, to reclaim fallen sinners. So when is discipline? Yes, sir. Um, Well, I have heard of of like a a killer who would like kill his mom because because she was an abusive mother, like, but he got arrested anyway. So uh, I feel like this is a rejoice to evil. Okay. Like, uh, Like having a like killing a drunk mother and then getting arrested anyway that's like that's like a that's like a whole nother level of like of like of like getting something that you don't deserve okay neat thoughts yeah i think there's a lot of ways we can connect back to that um and by grace we know we all get something we don't deserve in jesus christ uh and so what happens when the church is acting like the world what happens when church What happens when sin, unrepentant sin, is creeping into the church? Now, I worry when I teach this lesson that some of you are going to walk away from this and be like, oh no, I just just sinned. Are they going to discipline me now? When does sin become a matter for church discipline? I, I think when it is disruptive to the peace and purity of the church. That's a major one. That's what we're seeing in Revelation is the church is being pulled apart 
by false teaching and things like that. So when it's affecting the peace and purity of the church, when it's publicly bringing shame to the glory of Christ, I used that illustration very early on in this class of my grandfather uh, had a business named Mark Furniture and he sold it and the way they were doing business was very different than the way he would do business. And he didn't like that it was bringing shame to his name. And so he basically bought the business back for a whole lot more than he sold it for. Um, when somebody is publicly profaning the name of Christ, uh, or um, when there is evidence that somebody in the church who professes to be a Christian, who's taken the vows of membership, when there's evidence that they may not really be believers, then church discipline is appropriate to lovingly correct that person. How do we do that? You know, if you were to look at our book of church order, it's about this thick and about a third of it is all devoted just to how to do church discipline. Part of the reason is we live in a litigious society. You're going to get sued if you do church discipline. It's just going to happen. Um, typically, if the church has done it right, then the courts do not uphold those who are suing them. Um, but we're given incredible amount of instructions that have to be followed to a T in the church discipline process. Um, in a sense, church discipline is happening all the time. Every time the word is preached, it is corrective. So today we're going to hear uh, warnings against complacency in our walk with the Lord. Who here is not at times complacent in our walk with the Lord? So church discipline happens proactively all the time, informally all the time. But there are times where uh, it becomes a formal act. And so here's just a kind of a summary of how that would look. Uh, let's say that you are driving down Bay Street and you see a man of this church walking down the street and he is being very affectionate towards a woman and she is not his wife. What do you do? Well, the first thing would be go to that person individually. These instructions come from Matthew 18. So, hey brother, I saw you on the street yesterday and it seemed like you were affectionate towards this woman who we know is not your wife. He might say, yeah, that was my sister. I might say, okay, don't be that affectionate towards your sister. That's weird, but okay. Um, but he's, if he says to me, stay out of my business, don't judge me. Well, the next thing I'm going to do is get another brother or sister from the church and go back to that person. This is Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 um, that two ought to go to him and rebuke him. If the person still is unrepentant, then you go to the church. And what that looks like in our context is telling it to the leadership of the church, to the, to the elders. Let the elders determine what to do at that point. And it may, they may hear it and go, you know what, Amy's just a bitter woman. She's mad at them. There's a grudge there. We don't think there's anything legitimate. We'll look into it, certainly. But we might say, okay, we don't see enough grounds to, to believe that. Or there's not two witnesses like the Bible requires. Um, or we may say, yeah, this is very much a legitimate issue and we need to open an investigation into it. Uh, the leadership of the church goes to them, challenges that person, calls them to repentance. If they repent, then whatever steps are needed are taken for restoration. You know, if there was adultery, there needs to be counseling for the family and things like that. I mean, it's not just over and done with. There's a lot of steps to walk through there. We also have to be very careful just because somebody says they're sorry, there needs to be time to evidence that. So all of that's complex, and I'm thankful for wise elders who know how to um, 
how to walk through that. Uh, what happens if the person says, forget you, I don't want anything to do with y'all, don't you correct me, whatever it is, which is often how church discipline ends. Well, it goes to the point of what's called excommunication. They're no longer viewed as a communing member of the body of Christ. This should all be done with love and care, but there comes a point where you have to say, for your sake and for the sake of the church, we are warning you that you are living in a way that reflects not the body of Jesus Christ. Um, excommunication actually wouldn't happen in that case because the man was cheating on his wife. Excommunication would actually because, be because of what we call contumacy. That's a willful unrepentance. So he's been warned, he's been called to account, he's been called to repent, and yet he persists in his willful unrepentance. That's called contumacy. That's actually what excommunication uh, comes from, not from adultery, but from contumacy. Um, if you look at, at page 74, don't worry about it now, but the censures of the church, the ways the church may correct somebody. So you may hear at times such and such is under censure. Um, I want you to understand what those are. So that's on 74. Uh, last thing for you to be aware of is there is uh, also a form of discipline called pastoral discipline, which is where someone has distanced themselves from the church for a period of a year or more. They've not been active in fellowship. Now, we're not talking about somebody who's a shut-in. We're not going to go excommunicate somebody who's in a, a nursing home, right? But somebody who uh, has by their life said, I do not desire to be in communion with the body of Christ. Now, they may still want their name on the roll, which for the life of me, I cannot understand why. Uh, but after a year of non-attendance, then they may be removed from the rolls, um, really as a warning to themselves. Hopefully, they'll say, well, we've actually been attending such and such church, and we're really growing there. Thank you for how you shepherded us, uh, but we're going to be at such and such now. Oftentimes, we find it's because it's somebody's not walking with Christ. Okay, these are hard topics. I wish an hour were enough to scratch the surface. It's really not. It would take us 10 hours just to have a real grasp on this. But I want you to understand the basics because the odds are you're going to see this stuff happen. It doesn't happen frivolously. It's not like every week we're excommunicating somebody. But it will happen, and we want you to be aware of it, and we want your prayers and your support as we walk through it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together for these uh, brothers and sisters and pray that you would lead, guide, and direct them as they uh, pray about a church home. I pray that especially as we talk about church discipline, that would be an attractive thing to them where they would understand um, as we all need to. We, we need rails. We need guardrails in our life. We're all capable of, of sin. And so we need people in our lives who love us enough to say what you are doing is dangerous. What you are doing is destructive, and if you don't turn from it, your soul may be in great peril. Lord, those are not words of unkindness, but of deep love and affection. So I pray that as, as folks in this room particularly think about church discipline, that they would see your love in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.